Welcome to the Tea Room. I'm Wendy John. Now, before you grab a cuppa, I have an announcement. The Tea Room podcast is moving. Yes, in just a few weeks' time, we'll rebrand as the Medical Republic podcast. Super easy to find us. Just type the Medical Republic into Apple Podcasts or Spotify, etc., and we'll come up. We'll have a snazzy new format, bringing you the latest clinical research, new hacks for running your clinic, and investigations into stories that really matter to GPs. The Medical Republic podcast. See you there. Sometimes we don't know the words to use. We don't know that gender-affirming surgical procedures are a better way of asking rather than have you had the operation or have you had, you know, whatever surgery. That's Dr. Aziel Adan Sanchez, one of our guests today in the Tea Room. I'm your host, Wendy John. Thanks for joining me. How comfortable are you knowing which personal pronouns to call a trans or gender-diverse person? What is the best way to refer to surgeries in this space? Did you know that same-sex couples can't access the same level of Medicare rebate when family planning? And if you didn't, you're not alone. LGBTQI plus content is lacking in a lot of university medical curricula around Australia. But now there's an online training module that helps fill those content gaps. And it was created back in 2016 by this GP when they were still in med school. My name is Asiel Adan Sanchez. I'm a general practitioner at Northside Clinic with a special interest in HIV medicine, trans-affirming health and mental health. Dr. Sanchez is also an academic at the University of Melbourne and holds teaching positions at Monash University in Deakin. They believe that doctors can provide better care for their patients by having better understanding of diversity and the barriers that prevent people from engaging in healthcare systems. So Wavelength is an online educational module aimed primarily at medical students to really practice and get some of those skills around LGBTQIA plus health that might not be elsewhere covered in their medical curriculum or in their clinical placements. It's a really good primer for LGBTQIA plus health in general. So it doesn't assume any prior knowledge. And even though, yes, this was done with medical students in mind, you know, for a lot of clinicians that are out there that perhaps hadn't considered this as part of their practice, it's a really good, gentle start into it. That's, you know, digestible. It's not overwhelming. It's not overly demanding and can certainly be started and stopped and kind of done at their own pace. The Wavelength module content explores intersex health transgender health and sexual diversity. It also presents a lot of case studies where they model best practice approaches with LGBTQI plus patients. Skills like appropriate use of personal pronouns. He, she, they... I believe that pronouns and asking for pronouns and respecting someone's pronouns is really just as easy and as important and as simple as getting a patient's name right. You know, when you pick up a file, you're not going to call, you know, Bill George or George Maria or whatever else around it. It's really about respecting the person that's in front of you, respecting their, their dignity and making them feel cared for in that particular clinical environment. For LGBTQIA plus people, particularly for trans and gender diverse people, the interactions that you know we've had in, in clinical settings where that basic human decency and that basic interaction is not respected already flags that this might not be a safe setting to disclose, you know, your gender identity to disclose, your gender affirmation. Like it's one thing to talk about things academically and to know the right language to use, but it's another thing to actually apply it in practice when a doctor's having a consultation. 
That's, that's right. And I do find that when I'm talking to medical students, other doctors, other tutors who are teaching in medical schools, they get that pronouns are an important thing and that they should be respectful of someone's pronouns. But how to incorporate it into a clinical practice, that's kind of where it stumbles and falls. And it might not necessarily be that, let's say, a medical student is ill-intentioned, but just that they've never been taught how to ask that question in a clinical context respectfully. Outside of that clinical context, they, they might be great, but, you know, once we put them in a busy hospital with a million things happening all the time, you know, the tools are not there to really guide that interaction. Dr. Sanchez says that using preferred pronouns is not just respectful and trust building, but it can be a useful tool clinically. Let's think of someone who is transmasculine, a trans man who might not have had surgical affirmation, but still presents very much as a man and making that assumption that this person, you know, might use a certain set of pronouns will actually hide some very clinically relevant details and might make not that person feel safe enough to disclose that clinical information or that information that might be relevant to their clinical presentation. But what does all of this look like in practice? In a clinical environment, I often tell medical students to really fall back on the skills that they already have around cultural competency, around cultural literacy, build that rapport with the person if you've got a bit of time to do so. So, you know, we might be talking about work and family and what you do at home. Um, by the way, are there any pronouns that you'd like me to use? And, you know, that's nice, organic and simple. Dr. Sanchez also suggested some other ways to take away some of that awkwardness that can happen when discussing personal pronouns. It really is about the clinical environment and thinking through it rather than perhaps individual clinical skills. So, for example, I'm thinking about coming through the door. Are there any signs there that might tell me, hey, this is a queer friendly space going through reception or triage? Are there any posters that flag that this is a queer accepting space? You know, in, in the forms, is there going to be a line about pronouns? Am I going to be able to self-describe my gender rather than just have the male and female box? Are there going to be a separate space for Medicare details? Because for a lot of trans and gender diverse people, you know, what's on Medicare is not actually reflective of who that person actually is. The name might not match. The gender markers might not match. So, you know, are there spaces for me to disclose that information safely that are part of the usual intake routine that doesn't single you out as a trans person? Evidently, a big part of it is making sure that we have an adequate medical environment where people can feel safe and don't have to have awkward interactions. And I find that if a safe space is put into place, if we take into account all of those factors, then the interactions become really easy and really simple because, you know, by the time a person comes into your consulting room, you might already have that person's preferred pronouns. You might not need to ask because they felt enough safe enough to disclose it in the first place. You know, they felt safe enough to, you know, already on the intake form that they identify as, you know, genderqueer, for example, or non-binary. And that way it kind of takes some of that awkwardness and navigating it and where do I include it? How do I ask around it? Because it's already, you know, part of the routine care. So now that a patient is sitting down with a doctor in the consulting room, are there any other common mistakes that doctors might inadvertently make? The most common mistake that lots of transgender diverse people experience, unfortunately, is having some assumptions made about you based on your presentation. So assuming, for example, assuming someone's pronouns to begin with and misgendering them already on, on that particular front. 
you know, from, from my own personal experience, particularly in clinical settings where I know they're not necessarily the safest and I might not want to disclose my gender identity, I might present very kind of masculine and people make certain assumptions about my gender identity and, and what that means. So you will mask it in order to make the interaction easier for you? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So I prefer not to disclose if I know that this is not going to be, you know, a safe environment. And certainly if I get misgendered from the beginning, then, you know, the likelihood that I'll disclose in the future is going to be even less. So making assumptions, I suppose, about someone's gender purely based on, on their identity is, is probably the most common thing. On how you perceive they look, what they're wearing, that kind of thing. That's exactly right. So, for example, assuming someone is a man purely because, you know, they are someone who's presenting in a, in a masculine way or wearing masculine clothes or having a beard, for example, you know, making any of those assumptions. And, and with the advent of telehealth in particular, now making an assumption about someone's gender based on their voice, for example, can be hugely triggering, you know, for a trans woman who might still have a slightly deeper voice than one would expect, let's say. Being misgendered over the phone can be hugely distressing. And you can imagine it, it also happens lots of times. So, you know, not necessarily that one particular doctor interaction, you know, trigger the whole thing. But this is something that might happen all the time when they talk to someone on the phone and then, you know, having to correct themselves and having to correct the, the doctor and having to really defend who they are when they shouldn't. What are some other experiences that LGBTQI plus patients might have in clinical settings that are discouraging or off-putting? The other common kind of distressing things that patients will report on is being asked fairly intrusive questions without necessarily kind of flagging why those questions are being asked or the perception that, you know, a clinician might be asking out of curiosity rather than out of clinical need. And a very, very common example in this is when we're doing a sensitive exam or when we're taking a sensitive history, asking about, you know, partners or gender affirmation procedures. I find that a lot of clinicians really struggle with asking those questions. And often the language that they use can be, you know, quite not only aggressive, but quite inappropriate as well. You know, have you had the operation, for example, being the most common one around it? You know, they might get the questions all the time outside in the real world. And to have it rehashed in a clinical setting can be, again, really triggering and really distressing for, for patients. How would you ask that question appropriately? The things that I do to flag a sensitive question is I explain exactly what I'm looking for and what I'm thinking. So for example, I might say, you know, sometimes lower abdominal pain might be caused because of sexually transmitted infections. I'm going to ask some sensitive questions. Would that be okay with you? And, you know, if that patient flags, yep, you know, I understand why this doctor is asking me those questions. I'll then ask, you know, first of all, are you sexually active? I'll work up towards asking perhaps some of the bigger questions that I want to know about. And the language that I'll use is, you know, have you had any gender affirming surgical procedures? And if that person says, you know, yes, I might then ask exactly what they've had and might let them tell me in their own terms, rather than make assumptions about what procedures a trans person might have had based on their appearance or, or based on my own assumptions or based on my own internal transphobia and discrimination. 
So we've touched on personal pronouns, creating inclusive and safe clinical environments, and how to ask about gender affirmation surgery. But wait, there's more. Another example is, you know, when talking about a sexual history, rather than asking about the gender of the partners, which, you know, already doesn't really give you the information that you want, just because someone is a woman doesn't necessarily mean that they engage in certain types of sexual activity. But I might ask, you know, are your partners assigned male at birth? Are your partners assigned female at birth? And again, it's a quick little easy hand, shorthand way of asking really what you want to know. So you can make that kind of full risk assessment. Having the language that is safe, that won't assume or misgender or misrepresent the partners of that particular individual. And it also flags, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about gender. I'm doing my best to not misgender anyone in this particular setting. There's a lot in everything that we've spoken about now to do the wavelength online module is going to really expand all of this significantly and deepen the the content and the capability of clinicians to engage with LGBTQI plus patients more effectively. Absolutely. And and sometimes it is just about as simple as having the language. I think what a lot of medical students and, you know, doctors who haven't necessarily engaged in this space don't realize is that you already have the skills, (laughs) you know, you already have the skills about how to ask questions sensitively. We already have the skills about cultural literacy and cultural competency, but sometimes we don't know the words to use. We don't know that gender-affirming surgical procedures are a better way of asking rather than have you had the operation or have you had, you know, whatever surgery. So in a way, wavelength is there in, in the meantime, but I do hope it becomes redundant, you know, as time goes by and more medical schools start to incorporate this. So if this Wavelength online training module was created to fill a gap in med school curriculum, just how big is the gap? Basically, we found that the average hours of dedicated teaching was between zero and two hours across the whole degree. That's Sophia Nicolades, medical student at University of Queensland and advocacy officer for AMSA Queer. AMSA Queer is the LGBTQI plus arm of the Australian Medical Student Association. We were aware that there was a huge lack within our curriculums and we wanted to be able to advocate for curricular and infrastructural change from a really solid evidence base. Sophia's research delved into the gap in medical school curricula. Their findings are soon to be published and will be informing some future AMA guidelines. What we found was actually that the groups with the poorest health outcomes were also the least present in our curriculars, those being trans people, intersex people, bisexual people, and those with intersectional experiences such as First Nations people and folks with disability. Sophia's research shows that it's not just the quantity of LGBTQI plus content that's an issue, but also the quality. When queer health content is there, it is usually siloed into sexual health modules, very stereotyped and outdated, and that's borne out in the evidence from this survey. And because the health is siloed, it sort of creates this hidden curricula which biases students to see queer health as niche and as hypersexualized. And there's been many stories anecdotally and within the research that show that presentations get missed because there's not this broader understanding of queer community as intersectional, integrated and having as diverse health needs as any other patient. 
Through Sophia's research and their role at AMSA Queer, they're gathering momentum for change. The way that collective change happens is through addressing systems that you see are causing harm and the evidence is there to show that, you know, the system, medical systems can cause harm to these populations and, and are failing them. So just that the, the responsibility and, and the privilege is on us as medical professionals to address that institutional infrastructure. AMSA Queer now manages the wavelength online training. Sophia says it only takes a few hours to complete, but has the potential to have a big impact. It's really amazing to do your own reflexive work as a, as a doctor and to acknowledge and address what blind spots you have on an individual level. But doing your research, knowing areas in which you can advocate for will challenge the poor health outcomes that queer and gender diverse and intersex patients are experiencing. Dinelli Kalansuria is the current chair of AMSA Queer and is also a med student at University of Queensland. She's working alongside Sophia Nicolades to shift entrenched curricula that's creating this equity gap. Yeah, we've mainly found that queer, trans and intersex patients are just not receiving the standard of care that they deserve with like the majority of people like saying that they've had more negative experiences in medical systems, whether that be primary like GP care or in hospitals than positive ones. And they're only being able to feel safe in medical practices if they're like overtly queer health practices or if their doctors themselves are queer. Denali says that the lack of education has helped create a workforce of healthcare providers, many of whom just aren't comfortable or particularly competent working with queer, intersex or gender diverse people. So one side of the spectrum is that the doctor is too uncomfortable to, you know, ask the proper questions from a patient and therefore they result in like avoiding specific topics. You see this if like a queer trans or intersex person presents with, you know, symptoms of a, a sexually transmitted infection or something like that where, you know, it's clinically relevant to take a deep and thorough sexual history. However, if these doctors are, you know, uncomfortable they start avoiding asking these questions and that actually results in like negligent care because they're not doing the patient justice by asking the questions they need to get a diagnosis. So that's one end of the spectrum. I guess the other side of this spectrum is like a perverted over-curiosity and we see this coined so many times as trans broken arm syndrome and it's a classic example of a trans person coming in with a broken arm, something that's completely unrelated to their gender, to their sexuality, and yet a doctor sitting there asking about their genitals or asking about gender-affirming treatment and avoiding the presentation at hand. And I guess both of these examples are very different ends of the spectrum, but they come down to the same thing, and it's the discomfort of the doctor. These issues are exacerbated by location. Nelly says many regional and rural areas won't have an LGBTQI plus friendly clinic. And it means that people are very hesitant to seek medical care and it often results in delayed presentation. So people are only seeing doctors when they really, really need to. And at that point, there's so much of the preventative care that could have been done to, you know, to stop a disease progression. And that's why Danelli and Sophia and the Australian Medical Student Association are promoting Wavelength. So we would love for some practicing doctors to, you know, take part in this module and let us know if they feel that it's like relevant and if it's representative of the presentations that they've been seeing as well. 
I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in the tea room. Just to note that in this episode, we've used the word queer as a bit of a broad brush stroke to recognise the language that AMSA use, but we acknowledge that some people in the LGBTQI plus communities choose not to identify as queer. Also, AMSA queer prefer to use the acronym LGBTQIASB plus with A for asexual or aromantic and SB for sister girls and brother boys to acknowledge that gender diversity predated colonisation on this land. We have been joined today by GP Dr Aziel Adan-Sanchez from Northside Clinic and the University of Melbourne. We've also heard from the Internal Advocacy Officer for AMSA Queer, Sophia Nicolaides, and Chair of AMSA Queer, Dinelli Kalansuria. And a quick reminder, the Tea Room is rebranding to The Medical Republic Podcast. Super easy to find us. Just type The Medical Republic into Apple Podcasts or Spotify, etc., and we'll come up. Thanks for tuning in. Victoria, this is the closer for the Medical Republic podcast. 